Hello and welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast. This is our program with Steve Inskeep, co-host of National Public Radio's Morning Edition and author of the book, Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. My name is Tane Danger. I'm director of the Westminster Town Hall Forum. And if this is your first time joining us, welcome. The Westminster Town Hall Forum is based out of Westminster Presbyterian Church in downtown Minneapolis, Minnesota. We are Minnesota's longest-running national speaker series. Our mission is to present voices of conscience addressing the issues of the day from an ethical perspective. All of our programs are free in person, as a live stream, and here as a podcast. That is overwhelmingly thanks to individual donors like you. So, if you can, please consider supporting this service by making a donation today. You can do that at our website, westminsterforum.org. Today's program with Steve Inskeep was recorded live at Westminster on October 7th, 2023. The first voice you'll hear is the forum's moderator, Tim Hart Anderson. Steve Inskeep is a co-host of National Public Radio's Morning Edition, the most widely heard radio program in the United States. He also co-hosts NPR's Up First, one of the nation's most popular podcasts. Inskeep began at NPR covering the 1996 presidential primary in New Hampshire. No one else would do it, so he was sent to do it. He went on to cover the Pentagon, the Senate, the 2000 presidential campaign of George W. Bush. He then covered the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. In 2003, he received a National Headliner Award for investigating a military raid gone bad in Afghanistan. And in just the past month, he's interviewed everyone from Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky to House Republicans to members of the band called Talking Heads. He's the author of multiple books, and his latest out just this week is Differ We Must, How Lincoln Succeeded in a Divided America. It's been heralded as a deeply human look at one of the most written about figures in American history. Inskeep adeptly shows how Lincoln's mastery of politics adapted and evolved throughout his career. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Steve Inskeep. Thank you. Thank you and good evening. Thank you for the introduction, Tim. I really appreciate that. And thank you for that warm welcome. I was a little humbled when I realized that this was going to be on the radio and that I'm supposed to speak for 25 minutes, just one person talking for 25 minutes in a row. And I had to give this little thought, like, who has ever sustained interest on the radio as just one person talking for 25 minutes from Minnesota. Who has ever done that? (laughs) And I couldn't quite remember the name, but I'm sure it would come to me if you'd give me a quiet week. (laughs) 
Some people got the latter part of that joke. <laughs> Not everybody, that's just fine. Um, it's really great to be here uh, and have this discussion. I do cover the news as a day job. There's a lot of grim news. On the day that we are talking, we're absorbing news of a new war in the Middle East between Israel and Hamas. Uh, just a week ago, the House Speaker, the Speaker of the House of Representatives, was deposed in a, in a vote. A lot of other things are going on in the country, and by the time that this is broadcast, perhaps we'll know how some of those stories have turned out, and there may be new difficulties on the way. We have an opportunity, though, tonight to try to take the long view, which is what I try to do when I'm writing history, earlier versions in some cases of the stories that I cover today. And that is absolutely what I've tried to do with this biography of Abraham Lincoln. This is a man who is, in one way or another, in almost all of our heads. We all have an idea of Abraham Lincoln, in some cases more true than others. For example, some of you may know the story that Abraham Lincoln wrote his famous Gettysburg Address on the back of an envelope. Anybody heard that story before? Yes? Not true. <laughs> there were several drafts on regular sheets of paper, and he wrote it. But in honor of the legend of the Gettysburg Address in the back of an envelope, I have chosen this evening <laughs> to make some notes of my speech on an envelope that I got from the Hyatt Regency across the street. So I'm excited to be here. I want to get a few more facts about Lincoln on the table. I think it's a good idea to find out where an audience is on a topic. The very first talk that I gave about this book, I asked a group of high school students in Delaware to tell me facts about Abraham Lincoln, things they knew about Abraham Lincoln. And the answers from these 10th, 11th, 12th graders ranged from he had a big hat to he suspended the right of habeas corpus in 1861. That is the right to be able to face your accuser in court of law. I mean, just really remarkable uh, bunch of facts from the basic to the really sophisticated. And so I want to just take a moment and do that now. Can a few people shout out to me just some fact or even a single word that you know about Abraham Lincoln? Anybody? I heard tall, Emancipation Proclamation, grew up poor. Couple more? Say, what? Rail splitter, that's a good one. From Kentucky. Wow, we're kind of... He lost several races, that's right. He, uh, he had a number of political failures before the fairly large big success. He was shot, rivals on his team, a reference to team of rivals, Doris Kearns Goodwin's history that talked about his cabinet and how there were other men in the cabinet who thought they should have been president instead of Lincoln. I'm sorry, couldn't hear that one? He was a father, thank you. Okay, we gotta stop there, because you know so much. You've got the whole book, ladies and gentlemen. House divided cannot stand, one of his famous uh, lines from a famous speech. So we all have Abraham Lincoln in our heads, or nearly all of us do. And if there's somebody here who doesn't feel that they fit into that category, this talk is also for you. But a lot of us have Abraham Lincoln in our heads. So that does lead to the natural question, which people always ask you when you write a book about Lincoln, why would you write the 18,000th book about Abraham Lincoln? And fortunately, Abraham Lincoln has a quote that speaks to this. 
which I wrote on the back of an envelope. Seriously wrote it on the back of an envelope. This is from not the Gettysburg Address, but his address at the Cooper Institute in 1860 when he was uh, emerging as a presidential hopeful and was invited to give a paid speech in New York City um, uh, to uh, a crowd there. For some reason, he didn't come to, to, to this forum. I guess it probably wasn't operating at that time. But he came to New York City, and he gave this strikingly, to me, the first time I read it, almost shockingly humble, self-effacing beginning to the speech. He's in New York City, he's in the big town, he's bought a brand new suit, he's in front of the city's elite. Some of them are already thinking about him as a presidential contender. This is a big, important speech, and he begins by seemingly downplaying anything that he has to say. Mr. President and fellow citizens, the facts with which I shall deal this evening are mainly old and familiar, nor is there anything new in the general use I shall make of them. If there shall be any novelty, it will be in the mode of presenting the facts and the inferences and observations following that presentation. Really, the first time I read this, like, man, sell yourself. <laughs> but in researching this book, I went back to that speech and read it and read it again and again. And what Lincoln does in the speech is he talks about slavery. And he talks about the founding fathers and their view of slavery. And this is, for those who don't have it in their heads, it's 1860, slavery is legal in almost half the states. It is the overwhelming debate, the overwhelming issue facing the country, what, if anything, to do about slavery. And Lincoln goes back to the founding fathers in this speech and demonstrates that the majority of the framers of the Constitution had, in one way or another, at one time or another, gone on the record against the spread of slavery. He was using the Founding Fathers to make a point for his argument. And I realized, by saying that all these facts are old and familiar, he was telling his audience and his critics, I am not radical to be against slavery. The founders of the country, most of them, spoke out in one way or another against slavery. He was taking his humility and using it as a tool to make a point. And it's in that kind of interaction with other people that I felt that I did learn something new about Abraham Lincoln, some things that I felt that I did not understand very well before. And they get to the question of how to deal with people who differ with you, people who disagree. I ended up structuring this biography such as to tell Lincoln's whole life story, or at least to attempt to. If you read, you'll determine that for yourselves. But I attempt to tell his whole life story through a series of meetings, 16 meetings, with people who differed with him who came from a different race, a different background, a different social class, and above all, a different opinion. There are many disagreements in this book. And that was my effort to understand how Lincoln wrestled with a problem that many of us struggle with today. How to govern a divided America. 
how to talk to somebody at a divided Thanksgiving table. Anybody have that issue here, like relatives of different politics? How to manage our interactions with other people in a big, diverse country where there are going to be many disagreements. Now, I want to tell you about a few of these meetings, at least a little bit, but I also want to mention a few uh, overriding characteristics of Lincoln's political style. In addition to humility, which was kind of cleverly used, which we just talked about, he did a few other things that maybe not every leader does today. Abraham Lincoln did not demonize his opponents. He did not signal his virtue. He was arguing in a great moral cause, the greatest single moral question the United States has faced. He believed that slavery was a moral outrage, and yet he did not act morally superior to the people that he was criticizing. He didn't even ask his supporters to act morally superior to the other side. There's an occasion in 1854 in which he's speaking in the free state of Illinois to an audience that at least notionally is against slavery, although people had many opinions of it there. And he says that they should not feel superior to slave owners. In fact, he says, if we were in their position, we might do just as they do. And if they were in our position, they might do just as we do. He was arguing that people are shaped by their environment, that they are shaped by circumstances, and the proper goal in this case was to change the circumstances, to change the system. That was another thing that he did. He focused on slavery as a system, a system of interlocking laws that locked a man or a woman behind iron doors with a lock of a hundred keys, as he said, and he excoriated that system and excoriated politicians who refused to admit that it was wrong. He didn't answer every attack. There is not a single occasion on record in which he responded to a troll on Twitter, not one. <laughs> he was fiercely criticized by some of his allies and they remained his allies. Frederick Douglass, who had escaped from slavery to become a great writer and anti-slavery activist and orator, wrote in his newspaper again and again and again during the Civil War how slow and vacillating the President of the United States was to attack slavery, because Lincoln did not do it at the beginning of his administration or at the beginning of the war that had been launched by the Confederacy to uphold slavery. And despite that criticism, in 1863, Lincoln met Douglas, and they worked together as allies. He did not answer every attack. If he did answer an attack, he would make use of it to send a larger message to the larger public. Horace Greeley, a famous newspaper editor in 1862, publicly attacked Lincoln for being slow to free the enslaved laborers of Southern rebels, which he had the legal authority to do thanks to an act of Congress. He was slow, according to Horace Greeley, and he wrote this giant open letter, put it in his newspaper, Lincoln did respond in this case. He wrote an open letter of his own to Greeley, which he had published in a competing newspaper, 
And he said, I, if, if there's anything in your letter that is dictatorial in tone or impatient in tone, I overlook that. Even though, of course, by mentioning it, <laughs> he didn't exactly overlook it, but he went on to state his strategic purpose in the Civil War. He said it was to save the Union by the shortest means under the Constitution. He said what his goal was. And by stating his goal, he gave the rationale for the thing that only he knew he was about to do because he had already drafted the Emancipation Proclamation and was waiting for the right moment to issue that great act. One of the things that was mentioned earlier, one of the things that we all know Lincoln for, the Emancipation Proclamation, he prepared the way for the public to accept this act that not everyone, even in the purportedly anti-slavery North, was ready for or interested in. In talking with people who disagreed, or who had different points of view or different backgrounds, he focused on his own particular view of human nature, a straightforward one. He believed that people were primarily motivated by self-interest, which is a dark thought, particularly for a moral leader, but a realistic one for a political leader. I think we instinctively know that that is true. We do look after our interests. If we don't, who else is going to do it? This is even a concept in law. You may be familiar with the phrase, a statement against interest. That's when a witness says something that is not good for them. It's considered more credible when a witness makes a statement against interest because we're not really normally expected to speak against our own interests. So it means something when you do. Lincoln concluded that people were motivated by self-interest. And if you thought about, with empathy, thought about what their interest was in a situation, you could try to appeal to them. I mean, for example, in this situation, I guess my self-interest is that you buy this book. <laughs> hundreds and hundreds of copies of this book. But you really, you're not going to do it unless you conclude that it is in your interest to buy hundreds and hundreds of copies of, of this book. And I suppose it would be a burden on me to make it your interest to buy this book, uh, which I would like you to do, by the way, since I've now said it three times. But <laughs> what I really want to do and what I aspire to do, because I think it is more in the spirit of these talks, is talk about our shared interests as Americans and what we can learn about dealing with one another. And just now I was about to say the phrase, getting along better. But I stopped myself because that's not truly what Abraham Lincoln did, and it's not necessarily what is called for in this time of division and trouble. Many of us today are frustrated with the idea of talking with the other side, because the other side seems bananas. The other side seems to be feeding on fake news and alternative facts, uh, or wedded to an ideology or to a person that they just simply, it's, it's impossible to conceive them changing their minds. And so why would you try? Why would you subject yourself to that abuse? Why would you put yourself in that situation, particularly if you feel you're a member of a disadvantaged group, if you're a member of a minority group, if you're a person of color, if you're LGBTQ, why would you say, I want to try to understand the other side that hates me? 
And I think there is some value, there's some reason for that. And the answer is that sometimes everybody getting along, everybody understanding each other is too high a goal. A more modest goal, though, is achievable, and it's a goal that Lincoln went for. In these interactions, these 16 interactions with people who differed with him, he didn't necessarily change their minds. They didn't often change his mind. Sometimes they could not work together at all. The meeting was a failure, and that's just part of life and part of his life story and part of, of everybody's story of that time. But the thing to remember was that he lived in a republic, in a democracy. It was not necessary for everyone to agree on everything. It wasn't even necessary for everyone to agree on one thing. If everyone agreed, that wouldn't even be democracy. That would feel like some kind of strange totalitarian state. It would feel like 1984. What is necessary in a democracy is not for everyone to agree, but for a majority of people to agree on just enough to keep the system moving along, to do basic things like pass, a, I don't know, pass government appropriations and have a Speaker of the House of Representatives, just to name a hypothetical things, that it would be good to have a majority of people that they would be um, in, in favor of that. And if we keep that limited goal in mind, which is still very hard, I think it's achievable, and American history shows that it's achievable. You can try to build a coalition that works together on just enough to succeed. And that, I think, is what we find Lincoln doing in these 16 interactions. There are a variety of people in this book with a variety of political views. It takes us through the 1840s and 50s, before the Civil War, when slavery was legal and America was becoming more and more divided on the topic. It takes us through the 1860s, when Lincoln is president and the South started the Civil War to defend slavery. By the way, People have this debate. I know that there are people who say the South did not start the war or it did not start because of slavery. You can respond if you get into that kind of discussion by just noting a couple of facts in a very plain way without demonizing anybody. Just note that we know that the South started the Civil War because they fired the first shot. And we know that they did that in defense of slavery because they said so. Alexander H. Stevens, who was the vice president of the Confederacy, said shortly before the beginning of hostilities that this whole principle of all men are created equal was a mistake, an error. And in fact, slavery was the proper organization of society, and it was time to found a country on right principles. In this divided environment, Lincoln uh, was a politician. People were correct when they said before that he grew up poor. In fact, he had less than a year of formal education. Probably he didn't think of himself as poor. I think he would have said he was ordinary. Most people were poor. He grew up on the frontier, uh, mostly in my home state of Indiana after being born in Kentucky. When he was seven, his father uh, handed him an ax and said, it's time to help clear the trees off of this farm. He wielded that ax in one way or another for the next 15, 16 years, manual labor while only rarely going to school, as I mentioned. His mother died before he was 10 years old. He had a difficult youth, more difficult than many of us can imagine, even though, as I said, again, I think it was fairly ordinary for his time. 
He then became a state legislator in Illinois and um, had an interesting had an interesting career, a talented career. Had a number of frustrations after that, as was mentioned here, as was mentioned by someone over here. Uh, he didn't lose many elections, but he kept like losing the nomination, or things would happen at the last moment that would frustrate him in in different ways. Uh, and his ambitions for higher office were largely frustrated. He only served one term in Congress. He ran for Senate once and failed, and so he ran for Senate again and failed. And it was a frustrating it was a frustrating time. But he was meeting people and finding his way toward what became the great issue of his life. And he met a number of rant, radical anti-slavery figures who are among the 16 characters in this book. Uh, one of them was Joshua Giddings of Ohio, whose faith, whose religious convictions led him to oppose slavery, and who was from a northern anti-slavery area, and so he could speak out in Congress. And they spoke out so fiercely against him, I clearly thought of him as a word that I am reluctant to say in this church. Um, begins with A? <laughs> begins with A. And in any case, um, we're also on the radio here, folks, so I'm just saving a bleep for Minnesota Public Radio. They can have the bleep a little bit later on. Um, in any case, uh, his colleagues hated Giddings for constantly agitating about slavery. Lincoln was his colleague in Congress and was not constantly agitating about slavery. He was somebody who kept his mouth shut. It's interesting to think about that because Lincoln was a famous storyteller. He was a famous talker. He eventually became a great speechwriter. He delivered some of the most inspiring speeches in American history, but he had a way of only saying what he wanted to say and holding back on other things. And he was not a fan of radical anti-slavery agitation, even though he was opposed to slavery and believed it was wrong all of his career and as long as he could remember. But even though they had different approaches, even though Giddings eventually was ostracized by most of his colleagues in the House of Representatives for even going against his own political party to support his anti-slavery views, he ended up working with Abraham Lincoln on a bid to abolish slavery in the District of Columbia. And it was revealing of Lincoln's style because he worked with this radical guy and he thought, now we need a conservative. And so he went to the mayor of Washington, DC, who was a pretty conservative guy who'd been born in a slave-owning family in Virginia, uh, but was at least notionally against slavery. And so Lincoln tried to get this guy on board. And there's a moment in the meeting with the mayor, the conservative mayor, where uh, Lincoln says, you know, I've done this as a very gradual bill. It's gradual abolition. It's conservative. I think that's something that you would like as a gradual change. And I've crafted this bill because I want to appeal to people like you. I know that this will not pass unless I appeal to people like you. And the mayor says, well, this is a good bill. It's a conservative bill. In fact, it's such a conservative bill, I'm pretty sure that that radical guy, Joshua Giddings, will hate it which makes me like it. <laughs> Lincoln, sitting in the meeting, was aware that, in fact, Joshua Giddings was in favor of this bill, precisely because it would get some conservative guy like the mayor to favor it. And he decides not to tell the mayor that, in fact, Giddings likes the bill because that might make the mayor hate the bill. Strategic silence. He worked with Owen Lovejoy, 
who uh, Tim mentioned earlier when he thought I wasn't listening. <laughs> I listen to everything. I'm, I'm a reporter, you see. And um, uh, Elijah Lovejoy, as mentioned, was killed for his anti-slavery views. Owen Lovejoy picked up the fight, preached for 17 years from a church in Princeton, Illinois, uh, which had a lot of people with, to say the least, mixed views of slavery. People would throw clods of dirt at him. They'd do all kinds of things, but he continued preaching. He made his house a station on the Underground Railroad. He was arrested for harboring an enslaved woman, and he went to court and did not deny doing it, but was acquitted because it could not be proven that she was enslaved. Another radical anti-slavery guy. And in 1854, he took part in founding the Illinois branch of this brand new anti-slavery party, the Republican Party of Illinois. And he invited this talented politician who hadn't been all that successful, but was well-known and very well-liked, Abraham Lincoln, to join the party. Lincoln thought it was too radical and declined. Owen Lovejoy and other of these early Republicans saw something in Lincoln, and in spite of him declining to join the Republican Party, they put him on the party's central committee, <laughs> which Lincoln only learned about later. Uh, but they were right. Lincoln ended up leaving his party, the Whig Party, which was falling apart in the debate over slavery, and joining the Republican Party and trying to shape a party that would be broadly inclusive of a wide variety of opinions and would succeed, would politically succeed. He was trying to build a majority coalition, and so he was working with people who had the same basic revulsion of slavery that he had, but had a different point of view about how to go about it, and they tried to work together tactically in order to succeed. And this leads to another of my 16 meetings, Abraham Lincoln, in trying to build the Republican Party of Illinois in the 1850s, came to a realization which a lot of anti-slavery people did, and that was that there were only so many anti-slavery votes in America. There was a small number of people who thought slavery was really bad, a small number of people who like literally owned slaves, and large numbers of people who would often say slavery was evil in the abstract, but they had unbelievable rationalizations for why really nothing should be done or nothing should be done right now. And Lincoln understood that in order to get a majority out of such an electorate, he needed every voter he could who was opposed to slavery, and that included people who hated immigrants. And so Lincoln made the morally perilous choice to appeal for votes among so-called know-nothings, these anti-immigrant societies who had views that Lincoln himself considered to be repulsive. But he needed their votes against slavery. And so he got a friend of his to help him campaign among the know-nothings, appeared at at least two campaign events with him, and tried to maintain a moral stance by not pandering to them at all about immigration. Lincoln actually said in a letter, if these guys ever get in power, I would rather move to a country that makes no pretense of loving liberty, such as Russia. But he spoke with them, and he made the effort in talking to people with bad views to get them to cast good votes. 
That's a pattern that I think is repeated throughout this book with many different kinds of people. I wanted to have the whole diversity of America reflected, or at least as much of it as I could, in 16 lives. And so there are a number of women in the book. Jesse Benton Fremont, the wife of a famous war hero, Western explorer and general, who sent his wife to the White House to negotiate with the President of the United States when they had a disagreement. Mary Ellen Wise, a young woman whose story is very hard to document, but she said she was from Indiana, that she was a teenager at the beginning of the Civil War, and that she cut off her hair, put on men's clothes, and enlisted in the Union Army as a soldier, which apparently a number of women, possibly hundreds of women, did. And in 1864, she appeared at the White House and managed to get into the president's office to talk to the president and to tell him that she was having trouble collecting her back pay. Her war record is really dubious, but Lincoln wrote her a note to take the federal paymaster saying, pay this woman, and if there turns out to be anything improper in it, I'll cover the difference myself. And then made sure that an account of this was published in the newspaper because it was an election year and women were participants in the anti-slavery movement, and Lincoln was a man of the people, and his sympathy for this poor farm girl from Indiana certainly made him seem like a man of the people, and also a man who wanted anybody, anybody who was willing to fight for the country, anybody. He signed the Emancipation Proclamation explicitly so that Southern laborers could be freed from bondage and brought north, and if they wanted to, they could enlist in the Union Army and add to the Union's numerical advantage. He was even willing to have women fight because he realized that what he needed, the thing that was going to win the war for the Union, was that the Union had a majority. Lincoln kept this majority coalition together when a part of the country tried to break away, and that majority, which won elections, was translated into a majority on the battlefield, which won the war. Lincoln did this in part by dealing with people who thought that he was not radical enough, like Frederick Douglass, people who thought that he was way too radical, like Duff Green, a man who tried to talk him out of the Civil War right before the Civil War. He was a slave owner who'd known Lincoln for years people who had objectionable, objectionable other views like the, the know-nothings, people who were all over the map. Even, as we heard before, people like William Henry Seward, who is in this book, who thought really he should have been, he should have been president. Um, Lincoln met Seward, uh, asked him to be his secretary of state uh, before his inauguration, and handed Seward a draft of his inaugural address and said, it's kind of a gesture of respect, please take a look at this and tell me what you think, are there any changes you'd like to make? And Lincoln had done this with a number of other friends who had said, it's awesome, I love it, or I'll change a word, or I'll change, maybe you should cut out this phrase. And Seward took it away and went off and then wrote Lincoln a long letter. He said, thank you, this is a wonderful speech. I really love your inaugural address. There's just three things I need you to change. The beginning, the middle, and the end. And Seward was kind of that way. And Lincoln dealt with all of these people. He did not always succeed, but he always tried. And I think 
There are lessons here for us today, which is what has motivated me to, drive, to write this book and which I'm happy to talk about in the questions that are coming up in a moment. We live in a moment of great division and great anxiety, but I think it's a reassurance that we do not need to persuade everybody. We need to persuade a majority to move the country in the right direction. It's a more modest goal, it's a more democratic goal, it's a more achievable goal. And I would like to think that there are certain approaches to this that matter to us politically and also in our personal lives, coming back to that relative that you know, you're gonna have to be dealing with in a few weeks at Thanksgiving. There are a few characteristics of Lincoln that I would like to leave you with, and one is empathy. We talked a little while ago about self-interest. Remember the part where I was urging you to buy this book? This book. And it's a joke. But if you do buy the book, it's fine. Anyway, empathy. Understanding how the other person sees the world. Years ago, while doing some reporting, I talked with a military officer who was talking about fighting the war in Iraq. And he said in his mind, there was a difference between sympathy and empathy. He did not want to feel sympathy for the enemy, to believe the enemy was somehow morally right, but he did want empathy for the enemy. He wanted to understand what was in the enemy's mind. And that is true for military officers, even when the person is not the enemy. Maybe it's a country that we hope we never go to war with, like China. Uh, maybe it is an ordinary Iraqi that may or may not be an enemy to you. You want to empathize and understand what's going through that person's head because then you can make a correct decision in how to respond. Lincoln showed a lot of empathy. And it's a thing I think we can think about, we can consider a lot more. How does the world look to the other person's shoes? Another characteristic of Lincoln was patience. He waited for the right moment. That's what he was criticized for in issuing the Emancipation Proclamation. He was being slow. In one of these meetings, Frederick Douglass criticizes Lincoln for failing to get equal pay for black soldiers, and Lincoln acknowledged that this was wrong and that he was working on it. And it took him another almost a year, but he got, got that done. Patience was important. And that points to another thing with which I will conclude before taking your questions. And that is Lincoln's idea um, of the world and of change. Very little happens that is of consequence in an instant, in a moment. Change takes a long time. And I'm going to read the last couple paragraphs of this book. This is a statement against interest because I'm going to give away the ending. <laughs> I mean, I hope you buy it anyway, but if not, I'd just like you to know this. <laughs> we note here at the end the speech that I gave you at the beginning that he said that people running the slave system were not necessarily any worse than any other human beings. They were human beings who had responded to the wrong incentives, the wrong motivations. They had responded to their circumstances. And what was necessary was to change the circumstances. Lincoln said his own actions were governed by circumstances. In recounting his decision to issue the Emancipation Proclamation, he said, I claim not to have controlled events, but confess plainly that events have controlled me. 
In every step toward liberation, he took into account both the need to win the war and the need to maintain democratic support. But it was too modest to say that he merely responded to necessity. It was better to say that he understood the power of circumstances and tried to advance his goals within them. He spoke to the people. He knew the people he wanted to lead, and he met them as they were. He spoke of things that mattered to them, nudging just enough people just as far as they were willing to go. Eventually, the anti-slavery movement changed the circumstances. Winning a presidential election in a way that no party ever had, and then winning a second election that came in the form of civil war. At the war's end, he was killed by a man who believed that he was changing history in an instant, but Lincoln had made his impression. After his death, the states ratified the 13th Amendment, banning slavery. The 14th and 15th Amendments followed, assuring equal protection of the laws and equal voting rights. These amendments were applied unevenly at first and even less as time went on. In numerous cases, Supreme Court justices concluded that the words in those amendments did not mean what they meant. But the words remained in the Constitution to be redeemed in decades to come. Part of the circumstances for later struggles, an influence on generations not yet born. Thank you for coming this evening. The book is different. We must, and I'll be happy to take your questions next. Thank you. And now, Mr. Inskeep, if you are ready, I'll present questions from the audience. I guess I better be ready. Yeah. I, I suspect as you talk about your book, uh, you hear this question often, so let's just get it out of the way. Sure. Uh, are there any politicians today <laughs> who uh, emulate the kinds of virtues and political skill that, that Lincoln did. Yeah, I can think of a few who have quite openly and explicitly tried to model Lincoln. Barack Obama began his first presidential campaign at the... Is someone going to do your gifts? Fine, applaud him. <clears throat> began his first presidential campaign at the old state capitol in Springfield, Illinois, where Lincoln had worked as a state legislator. And I think there are conscious or unconscious patterns of behavior that you can find in the way that Obama approached issues. I'm not the first person to notice this similarity. Lincoln was, by many people's accounts, slow to issue the Emancipation Proclamation. He did it when it was military necessary, militarily necessary, and also perhaps when it was politically possible. Uh, Obama was opposed to gay marriage until he wasn't, um, and chose a moment to do that that felt morally right and practically right to make that statement. Um, <clears throat> President Biden is another who comes to mind, who uh, you can applaud him too, that's fine. Um, and again, I'm not saying he is succeeding as Lincoln succeeded, that's a judgment we make day by day, but he is explicit and open about wanting to work when he can with people who hold disagreeable views. He got in trouble in his first presidential campaign by recounting times in the 1970s when he had worked with segregationists in the United States Senate to do positive things. He was fiercely criticized for that, which there it is. It's a difference of opinion about how to deal with disagreeable people. Um, and Biden has a particular approach 
that harkens back to this older style of politics. Um, I'm going to say one more. <clears throat> Donald Trump is, as Lincoln was, an innovative political communicator. <laughs> uh, I, <laughs> Should we let him get I away mean that, with that? Really, actually, but yeah, I, I did want to press it a little bit. The two you named seriously were were Democrats. Yes. Is there a Republican who comes? Yeah. To well, mind? I mean, I could, there's there's an example that I think of. I mean, there are plenty of people who've reached across the aisle in different ways. I mean, John McCain was someone who did this a lot. Um, yeah. There you go. Uh, there. I mean, the single most famous piece of legislation that he was associated with was McCain-Feingold. Uh, Russ Feingold was considerably more liberal and more democratic than John McCain, and they worked together. I also think of a famous historical example that I think is Lincoln-esque, and it involves a Republican from Illinois. Martin Luther King, in the March on Washington in 1963, spoke against the tranquilizing drug of gradualism essentially saying, we need equality now. Don't tell me that we have to move slowly because there is political opposition. We need equality now. He was effectively doing what Frederick Douglass was doing in the 1860s. Abolish slavery now. Now is the time. Everett Dirksen was a U.S. senator, a Republican from Illinois, who was in the United States Senate debating the Civil Rights Act, what would become the Civil Rights Act of 1964, and Dirksen was on a number of occasions, raising concerns and objections and proposing amendments to the Civil Rights Act of 1964. But what Dirksen really was doing with this political theater was persuading and gaining the votes of more conservative senators who they had to have in order to pass the Civil Rights Act, which Senator Dirksen always supported. He was doing the role there of Abraham Lincoln, of trying to move more conservative people along and taking political chances in order to do so. Thank you for that answer. I just should note that Liz Cheney was here at the University of Minnesota there this you go. week. Another illustration. Thank you. That's an, that's an illustration of someone who crossed party lines to support the Constitution as she saw it and to support the facts as we at NPR have reported them about what happened in 2021. This question is about how Lincoln developed these skills. Did he instinctively know how to persuade people to do the right thing, or did he work to develop his skills over time? I love that question. Uh, I don't think that he instinctively understood, and there's a lot of evidence that he did work at it and he learned from a very early age. There are accounts from his boyhood, even, of him carefully watching people. His stepmother describes grown-ups coming to visit the cabin and Lincoln, as a boy, would sit there quietly listening to the grown-ups converse. And when the visitors had left, Lincoln would begin asking his parents questions. And she said he would ask questions because he wanted to understand everything down to the smallest detail. By the time he was an adult, a man who worked with him in the Illinois State Legislature said that his mind had become a great storehouse of facts about how people lived their lives and what motivated them. Lincoln used the word motive as a synonym for self-interest. He wanted to know what people's motives were, and he would take that into account very clearly in the arguments that he would make to them, whether in speeches or one-on-one. -on -one. What do you think President Lincoln would do to address the current impasse in Congress? General Grant, no! 
No, let's think about that. Lincoln didn't have a lot of experience with that. Um, in Lincoln's time, he became president of the United States, and then a number of southern states seceded or tried to secede from the Union, which meant their representatives left Congress, which meant a large part of the political opposition was out of there. And Lincoln's party suddenly had huge majorities. Um, there was a midterm election. They lost a lot of that majority, but he had a Congress that was fundamentally on his side sometimes too much on his side. They began hunting for traitors in the administration and trying to run the war for him from time to time. It was a great frustration. Um, I don't know what Lincoln would have done exactly, but I do think that Lincoln would have understood something that uh, at least the House majority, House Republicans, seem to have missed, and that is that you need a majority in order to govern. Um, and there are three places where that seems to have gone wrong. The Republicans were greatly favored to win huge congressional majorities in 2022. They ran a particular kind of campaign that was narrower, that was what's called a base campaign. They didn't reach out for enough support and they underperformed. They did get a majority in the House of Representatives, but it was so narrow that a handful of lawmakers could blow up that majority. Speaker Kevin McCarthy was the second occasion he did not manage to keep that majority together, although he ultimately blew it up by working with the other side to do the normal business of government, which is something that I'm not going to say it was the right thing, but let's just say it was the normal and expected thing. Um, and then the final failure of this principle was uh, Congressman Gates and other Republican lawmakers who dethroned the speaker, but they don't have a majority either. And so nobody has a plan at this time, and it's uncharted territory. In your opinion, is the intensity of political and social diversity and tension today higher or lower than that prevailing in the 40s and 50s, ooh, 1840s ooh, and thank 50s? Thank you, thank you. And you're talking now about before the Civil War. I think it was worse then because there was a single overriding, overpowering moral issue facing the entire country. And as I mentioned before, it was an issue on which many people attempted to have nuanced or self-contradictory positions. But really, it was about as black and white an issue as we've had in America. I mean that in terms of clarity and not any other way. Um, and it was a serious, serious issue. We have serious divisions today. We could talk about divisions over abortion, just to give one example. Many divisions, but we also have many divisions that it's hard to imagine fighting a civil war over because they're disputes about culture, they're disputes about style, they're disputes about how you say things, they're people being angry over the implications of what somebody else almost said in a tweet. Um, the, a lot of our arguments uh, really do feel pointless and aimless, and in a way, that pointlessness and aimlessness is hopeful because you probably don't fight a war over those things. So you That's, wanted hope? Yeah. I got you hope. Good, thank you. <laughs> uh, are there other presidents you can think of in our history who have nudged the people forward and ended up making significant changes in American life. Oh my gosh, yes. And there is one in particular who was very mindful of the need to get a majority together, and that called for some compromise and some of the 
things he did that were criticized. Uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt in the 1930s. Uh, Robert Dalek has a great book about this. David Leonhardt, by the way, has a, has a much more recent book. In fact, it comes out in a couple of, of weeks uh, that talks about this same period. Dalek's book observes that Roosevelt, having won election in 1932 in the depths of the Great Depression, went for social change, but he attempted to frame popular measures. He really didn't want to do a lot of things that were unpopular. He really didn't want to do a lot of things even if they were 51-49 issues. He wanted to win big majorities, 60-40 issues. Um, and I guess that was in his self-interest because he wanted to be reelected. It turns out he wanted to be reelected again and again. Um, but Roosevelt's view of it was meshing that self-interest with the national interest. Democracy was under threat. Democracy had been discredited by the Great Depression. Democracy was being pressured by these competing systems, communism and fascism. Democracy needed to win big. And Roosevelt focused on popular programs. That also led him to some deep moral compromises. He got a lot of votes out of Southern segregationist senators uh, and gave up something for it, allowed a lot of federal programs to be segregated in ways that have warped society ever since. So it wasn't a 100% win, but he was following that principle of building a big coalition and getting things done. Let me ask one last question that, that refers to your work as a journalist. Sure. And not just as the historical work you've done, but you, you interview people all over the spectrum. You see a lot of the, the trouble in the world today. There's trouble in the world? Yes. Okay. Uh, you refer to Israel and Palestine. You yes. just interviewed Zelensky. Yes. Uh, how do you as a journalist maintain your own personal sense of hope for the human family? Thank you. Aren't you glad that I did not answer no to that question earlier? <laughs> because we'd be heading really for a dark end. I think that part of the answer lies in my study of history. Um, and I don't mean just to say it's been worse, although it's been worse. Um, that that's part of it, but I try, again, you'll read or listen or whatever and tell me if I succeed, but I try to take the long view of things, which I have no doubt that you have done in your decades running this forum and in the kinds of people you've brought here, you've surely taken the long view of what is important in the long run. And when you take that long view, a lot of the news events that are disturbing become a little bit less so because you realize that, that, that certain terrible things or seemingly terrible things will pass. And then we can focus on the longer term issues that are of true importance. And in the longer term, um, we can have faith and hope in democracy. May I conclude with a quote of sorts, which doesn't sound hopeful, but I think it is. Um, Theodore Roosevelt, played once off of an old saying. It's a Latin saying, vox populi vox dei. The voice of the people is the voice of God. Politicians loved this saying, the voice of the people is the voice of God, because it accounted for the uncertainty of elections and a lot of other things. Roosevelt, though, once, when his party was on the way to, the Republican Party was on the way to nominating a corrupt candidate for president, when has that ever happened? But, but <laughs> the Republican Party was on the he, he was a Republican. He was a great Republican president. His, his party was on the way to nominating a corrupt candidate for president, and Roosevelt couldn't believe it. And he said, 
the voice of the people may be the voice of God in 51 cases out of 100. <laughs> but in the other 49, it's the voice of the devil or of a fool. I acknowledge that. I acknowledge the imperfections of democracy. But what makes me hopeful is I hold on to that 51%. Thank you, Steve Inskeep. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this Westminster Town Hall Forum podcast with Steve Inskeep. A reminder that you can hear almost all of our programs going all the way back to 1980 at our website, westminsterforum.org. Please check out our archive there. A big thanks this week to Minnesota Public Radio for recording this audio and providing it to us. Our technical direction for the Westminster Town Hall Forum is by Keith Kopatz. Our theme music was composed by Kenneth Veen and performed by the Copper Street Brats. My name is Tane Danger. Thanks for listening. Join us again next time at the Westminster Town Hall Forum.